The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So we're in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've begun this journey, and it's a wonderful journey. And today's title is Jesus Displays Authority and Power. And um, we're in Mark chapter 1. And I want to remind you where we've been so far in Mark. We, we started out and he said, he is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what Mark says he's going to do. You'll remember that Peter, he consulted with Peter because about the first eight chapters isn't anything Mark eyewitnessed, but he consulted with Peter. And he loves in telling us in this biography of Jesus, the very first one written down, that Jesus was very active. He, he was busy. And one of the words that Mark keeps using 41 times, actually, in his short book is immediately and immediately and immediately. And we'll see that in the text today. Well, he begins his discussion of Jesus in the gospel with a description of the ministry of John the baptizer. He wasn't a Baptist any more than he might have been a Presbyterian. He, he was a baptizer, and that's what he did. And it set the stage for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then we saw that Jesus was baptized himself, and then he went into temptation. And then last week we talked about how he had begun to preach and said, repent and believe the gospel. And then he called his first disciples. Now we're to the place where he's beginning his ministry, and it is in Capernaum that he begins his ministry. Let me read for you. In fact, let me tell you this. In chapter 1, verses 21 through verse 39, it's just one day in the life of Jesus. Just one early day in the life of Jesus. So, verse 21, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. This is a very popular time in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's in the region of Galilee, as we talked about, and his popularity is growing. Now, all this took place at a place called Capernaum. And on the map, you can see that it's on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. The pop, it was populated from the first century all the, way through, all the way through the first seven centuries of history. They've done a lot of excavations there. It also is the closest city all around the, the sea or the lake that is to the Jordan River, which is kind of interesting, I think. They have found a 2,500-foot promenade there. An eight-foot-high seawall was there. It was a place of the Roman garrison there. It was a very Jewish town, and they had a good relationship. The, the, the people of Capernaum had a pretty good relationship with the Romans. It was very prosperous through the first four centuries. It was on the Via Maris. 
which is a trade route that was very prominent at the time. And um, let me show you some of the ruins that they found here. Here's a picture. You can see the Sea of Galilee behind the city. And there was a church built there later that was believed to be on the site of Peter's home. Um, excavations have been going on for a long time. Here you see uh, the contrast between the synagogue and the rest of the building in the area. And let me show you another picture of that. The synagogue, which dates back to the fourth century, was very large. They believe they've discovered the first century synagogue underneath. <laughs> but this one was built in the fourth century. And notice it's built of limestone. And then it's very interesting because everything else is black stone in the town. And so they wanted the synagogue to really show off. And so they built it of white limestone, which I find very interesting. It was a very fishing village, and it became the headquarters for Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's in a synagogue. Let me say, now, where did synagogues come into the formula? Well, after the Babylonian exile, when they came back into the land, and even while they were in Babylon, they started to meet together in synagogues. Synagogues simply means gathering. And um, while there is just one temple in Jerusalem, right, there are many, many, many synagogues, and they're spread out all over. In fact, you only needed 10 men in a town who were Jewish, and you could start a synagogue. So they're everywhere. Each synagogue had a ruler, an administrator. It's like the David Carter of the synagogue. You understand? He's the one who keeps everything in order. He's the one when they have a picnic, we're going to have it all done right, right? I mean, that's what the ruler did. He administrated. He gave out gifts that were accumulated by the body of believers. Uh, they kept the scrolls safely because they needed to be kept. There were also, and, and, and so for this reason, the synagogue was the center not only of their religious activity, but also the civic activity. It was just the center of Jewish life in the first century. And um, there were scribes there. And the scribes uh, primarily were the Xerox people of the first century. Understand? They were copying the scriptures. Scribes go way back. They, in the time of David, there were scribes. Ezra is a scribe. They, they, they copied scripture and they did it conscientiously. One of the great miracles of all the texts of Scripture that we have, both the Old Testament and the New, is because of scribes who were meticulously copying down the very Word of God. And they respected it as Scripture. And so they did so very carefully. In fact, they counted the letters. They, they would count the letters. I mean, it's a very arduous duty. Well, they also studied what they were writing down, and many of the scribes would become teachers. That's why in this text, they're identified as teachers of the law, because they began to interpret what was in the text, and they began to give out principles to live by. Now, the greatest of the scribes were called rabbis, right? You know, rabbi means great one. Great one. Oh, great one. I think you ought to start calling me the great one. No, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that at all. Okay? I, I've, I've shied away from the term reverend. I never go by reverend. Only God is to be worshipped. Amen? <laughs> Not me. But the rabbis played this prominent role, and many of them had been scribes. The scribes officially is not a sect. 
like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but most of the scribes were Pharisees because they believed uh, the word of God. And, and for that reason, they associated themselves with that sect of Pharisees who were very strict and often legalistic and came up with all kinds of extra rules. What the scribes were doing, and this is important to note in the text today, they were teaching what earlier rabbis had said. So they're accumulating the thoughts of earlier rabbis and then picking which one they like and then expounding on that. And, and that's where the conflict comes, if you will, or the, the, the remark in the text about Jesus teaching with Authority. This also was on a Sabbath day, and that's the day of rest, the day that God set apart for worship. And so note that Jesus Christ, on the Sabbath, went to the synagogue. Just note that. And he didn't go alone. It's in the plural. So James and John and Andrew and Peter and the other disciples that are now following him also went to synagogue. Jesus also, during his lifetime, would go to Jerusalem for the feasts because that's what was, they were taught to do, and he was practicing that. Now, in this particular case, nothing happens of controversy in Mark 1, but by the time we get to chapter 3, it's going to be very controversial what Jesus does on Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It's so sad the reason why people come to gatherings sometimes, right? Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Note this, verse 6, chapter 3 of Mark. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That's how serious this is going to become. But in Mark chapter 1, when he's just beginning, everything's great. Everything's great, and it's a wonderful thing. Jesus makes two manifestations of his mission in these verses, 21 to 28 of chapter 1, which sparks an increase in his popularity in Galilee. He teaches with authority and he exercises demons with power. So let's look at this first point. He teaches with power. He teaches with authority. And it's so precious to read this. Um, in fact, Mark says that he was teaching 17 times, he uses the word teaching, to describe what Jesus did. Last week we were looking at him proclaiming the kingdom of God, but here he is teaching. And he teaches in many different settings. Here he's teaching in a synagogue. There are times when he teaches out on a hill. That we'll, we'll read in chapter 4 where he's teaching by the Sea of Galilee. It seems like everywhere Jesus went, he was teaching. And he's teaching not only in his words, he's teaching by the model of his life, of course. And so the NIV translates, he began to teach because it shows that progression of ongoing ministry. It's the Sabbath day and Jesus is there. I'm trying to wonder and figure this out, how a carpenter from Nazareth gets to teach in synagogue. I mean, it doesn't make sense. He's not a rabbi. He hadn't 
study, but he shows up and they give him the platform to teach. And all I can say is, you know why that happened? Because of God. <laughs> God is putting his son on the stage. And here he is, teaching in the synagogue. Now the people notice his teaching and they are amazed at his teaching. This is very exciting. Mark uses seven words, seven different words to describe the amazement of the crowd. Seven different words. We're going to find two of them in our text today. Uh, this one means that they were overwhelmed by what they were hearing. They were taken aback. They, they, just, they just couldn't explain it. His teaching was so very extraordinary. And he tells us why. Because he taught with authority. And not as the scribes who kept quoting old rabbis. Jesus just spoke, and it's the Word of God. In fact, if Jesus said, hello, friend, that's the Word of God speaking. Every word he spoke, he spoke with authority. Because he is the God-man. Because he is the Son of Man. Because, as we read earlier, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, the Father said from heaven at his baptism. So the word authority becomes really important in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to see this as we travel along. And, and he is in control. Jesus Christ is in control. And he has the freedom to say whatever he wishes. And when he speaks, it's the very word of God. So he's speaking and teaching with authority. In fact, this word in the uh, translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint into Greek. When they use this word, it often has God in the context. So subtly, when Mark's using this, he's affirming the deity of Jesus, which he does in many different ways, but that's the case. Now, by the time we get to Passion Week in, <laughs> in Jerusalem, they're going to come up to Jesus and say, by what authority are you doing this? Authority becomes a big deal because Jesus spoke with authority. Getting back to the word amazement, there's only one time in Mark where it says Jesus was amazed with this particular word. And sadly, he was amazed at the unbelief in Nazareth, his hometown. He was amazed at how little he could do there because of their unbelief. But the crowd is amazed by his teaching. So I'm asking us today, are you amazed by the teaching of Jesus Christ? Did, did we just sit back and are amazed by it? When we consider that this is the very word of God, last week we looked at Revelation 19 when he comes again, it's the sword that comes out of his mouth that defeats all his enemies. There's power in his word. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. I'm afraid we get too familiar. We've got more translations. We've got more tapes to listen to and whatever. And we forget this is the word of God. When Jesus is speaking, it's truth and it's love. It's grace and it's power. And it comes with authority comes with authority. In Timothy, it's, Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, and is useful 
profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I've shared this with you before. Almost every time I look at this verse, I think of my old prof who said, teaching, that's what is right. <laughs> rebuking, that's what's not right. Correcting is how to get right. And training in righteousness is how to stay right. And all of it comes from the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. Now, I wanted to show you something because we're talking about Peter. Peter had input with Mark. And, and look at what Peter says in his last letter. This is the very end of uh, 2 Peter. And look at what he says about the very words of Paul. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother, Paul, also write to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying what Paul wrote down is as authoritative as the Old Testament scriptures, as the, as the law of Moses. And so they recognized this. They recognized the authority of the Word of God. And today, the authority of the Word of God is being questioned and refused like no other age. Time and time again. And we come back to the truth that we are people of the book. <laughs> but we're really people of the God who spoke through the book, right? That's really the truth. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith and his excellent word. What more can he say than to you, he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine." Even though in old age all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs still their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never, forsake. John Rippon, 1787, wrote those words. We used to sing that song, How Firm a Foundation, You Saints of the Lord. And it's a great reminder of the truth of the foundation of our lives in the Word of God, in the authoritative Word of God. Alright, let's move on. Jesus exercises demons with power. Just then, immediately, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. He cried out. The demon was speaking. I believe in evil spirits. I believe in a personal devil and Satan. You may not believe that. 
In fact, a survey was taken about 10 years ago of Americans, and uh, the results were kind of interesting. 57% of people believe in the existence of the devil, while 28% deny his existence. 51% of respondents believe that someone can be possessed by an evil spirit. 28 said, no, that, that can't happen. There is an element of choice by someone who permits the enemy to possess them. That's true. 46% believe in the power of exorcism. 19% don't, and 36% aren't sure. Well, in Mark, that day, in the synagogue, they found out. They found out that an exorcism did not require incantations and rituals and a lot of time. That by the very word of Jesus Christ, the demon is expelled. That's just amazing. That's why, in part, they were amazed. Mark often uses the term unclean spirit because these spirits epitomize all that is evil, all that's dark, all that's impure. And what the demon said that day is true. It's kind of like Jim Carrey. Remember that movie, Liar, Liar? You know, how he can't say anything but the truth. Demons were required by the Lord to state the truth in this particular case. <laughs> what do you want with us? That's often said by an inferior to a superior. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. That little off-the-road place on the other side of the tracks. They're trying to diminish him. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to condemn us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. James says, you believe God's one, you do well. Demons also believe and shudder. They know good doctrine. They know this to be true. He's the Holy One of God. But they don't believe him. They won't submit to him. That's the difference, see? They know it to be true, but they will not submit to him, so they are evil, and they're promoting evil. And they, and they say it in a loud voice, which they want to be noticed. He's the God-man. They said it. Jesus of Nazareth, that's focused on his humanity. The Holy One of God, that's focused on his deity. And it's no contest. Because then Jesus speaks. He rebukes them. He, he, just, he just rebukes them clearly. Be quiet! You know what it means? Shut up. <laughs> Muzzle yourself. He said the same thing, we'll see later, to the waves and the winds on the sea. Be quiet. And immediately was calm on the sea. Come out of him. The demon can't argue. <laughs> he can't debate. He was to make a scene. So yes, the impure spirit comes out with a shriek and violently shakes him. It's a medical term for what happened in that moment. But he had to exit. The demon must leave. This is a true power encounter. And beloved, this still happens today. This is very dramatic. I, 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 I 
pause to introduce you to a friend of mine, Dr. Howie Brandt. I, I met this guy years ago when he was studying for his doctorate. I had an open bed in my room, so the poor guy got put in my room. He's a missionary in Africa. Howie Brandt went on to become the president of SIM Missions, and he, he's, he wrote a book. I didn't know he had written a book. When I was doing this research, I said, I'm going to buy the book. And then I found it was $50. I don't care. I bought it anyway. <laughs> this man touched my life in a very dramatic way. I'm in seminary studying for ministry. He walks into my room and he starts talking about what he is experiencing in the Ivory Coast of Africa. He went into tribes that had never heard the gospel. And the stories he told of power encounters were very dramatic. And every time, in every case, Jesus won. In every case, never failed. When he spoke and rebuked the enemies in the name of Jesus Christ, they left. He told me something that I never forgot. That in those tribes where a church was planted and began to grow and be healthy, the power of the enemy decreased. You see, that's why it's important that we stay strong, that we stay healthy as a body of believers. The enemy is active. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. And he's got a legion of demons with him. But greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And for that reason, we do not fear this. We know we have the means to victory, but only through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's not us, it's him. So we submit to God, then we resist the devil, and then he flees from us. So the crowds are amazed. Everyone is amazed. The people were all so amazed. Everybody was amazed that day. Different word. <laughs> Mark's already beginning to play games with us about this amazement stuff. The first word was like overwhelmed. This one means they're just awestruck. The ones in the crowd that had dentures, they fell out. <laughs> because they went like that. They couldn't, they couldn't explain what was happening. This is a new teaching. This is brand new. We've never seen this before. When, when, when the rabbis do exorcisms, it's this big, long event that they have to go through, all these incantations and all these rituals. He just says, be quiet, go. And it happens. This is the power of our Lord. Mark wants us to see the power of Jesus Christ, and he wants us to know that this power is still on today. They begin to debate. They begin to kind of discuss all this. But the exorcism confirms the authority of Jesus Christ and the 100% accuracy of his word. And the demons must obey. We will see this as we travel through the Gospel of Mark. This is not the only time we see this. So I want to ask you, are you amazed by the power of Jesus? Mm. Say, Pastor, I have my life cereal this morning. I, you know, got ready to come to church. If you have eyes, if I have eyes, if I have ears to hear, I will be amazed by the power of Jesus.
I know he's not walking on the earth like he did in the synagogue that day, but he's just as alive. He's just as real. What are you asking Jesus to do in your neighborhood? What are you, what are you asking Jesus to do in your life? Now, I know sometimes he says wait, and sometimes he says no, but how many times has he said yes? And the only explanation was that had to be God. There's no other explanation. Had to be the Lord. And I give him the glory. Jesus said it, all authority. Heaven and earth and under the earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Share me with others. Talk about me with others. Be amazed by what I do. It's just in my own life, I'm amazed. I hope you are. You know, if we had the time, we'd just tell stories. Story after story after story of what only God could have done and did. Dr. Cook, who was the president of the college I went to, that sadly just closed this week, won't be open anymore, the King's College. Dr. Cook, who was then the president, said, when you can't explain it, you know God was in it. <laughs> and that's so true. I don't know what you need from God today. Ask in the name of Jesus. Ask in his name. Ask on the basis of his authority. And stand back and be amazed at what he can do and what he will do. Let's rejoice in our all-sufficient Savior who teaches with authority and ministers with power. Dear Father, thank you today that we could gather on this beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you that we've been transported to a little synagogue in Capernaum this morning. And we stand back in amazement, Jesus, when we see that you taught with authority and you ministered out of power, all power. Lord, help us as we continue to celebrate today and sing and then eat and remember you. For the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen and amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.